Hello and welcome to Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Garamurthy. This is the show to listen to if you want to understand the causes of conflict and crisis and how to respond to them. Ravi and I work at the International Rescue Committee, where in our day jobs we design, test, and scale new solutions for humanitarian response. This season we've hit some really big topics like refugee resettlement, climate change, and the future of war. Uh, We've talked to so many different people from policymakers to activists to defence industry experts. It's been a really diverse set of conversations, so do check them out if if you haven't already. But we're now going to shift gears and bring you two bonus episodes where we do something a little bit different that we haven't done on this podcast before. We are going to talk with our family members. Uh, Ravi is going to talk with his dad and I am going to talk with my sister, both of whom are just as relevant as all of the people that we've talked with throughout the series. And the origin of this was that Grant and I were talking to our senior producer, Golda Arthur, who was asking us, why on earth did we end up working for the International Rescue Committee and on issues of displacement and, and refugees? And it's no real accident because both Grant and I have a connection to these issues that's quite personal um, and our family members have been engaged in this issue for, for much longer than we have. And we wanted to try and talk about their experiences and bring that to you. And so... We're starting with Glenna Gordon, my sister, who is a badass and amazing documentary photographer who has been published in the New York Times Magazine, Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal. She's done work as wide-ranging as crashing Nigerian weddings and capturing images of those to capturing the images of female Muslim writers who write romance novels in Boko Haram territory. This was a really interesting conversation. I learned more about her and her work than I have ever had, which was unexpected to me. And one of the interesting things that I've been grappling with in my personal life is the desire and call for people who've been working internationally um, over the arc of their lives to look more domestically as the politics have changed in the United States and other countries, um, which is something that I've done, something that she's done, and something that is a thing that a lot of people contend with that is a really interesting thing that we get into. Um, I hope you enjoy this entire conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Glenna Gordon. In anticipation of this interview, <laughs> I've listened to more and more episodes. Of Displaced? Uh, yeah, of What's course. your favorite? Wait, are we taping? Is this being taped so that <laughs> we can start the episode with my sister's favorite Displaced episodes? Okay. Well, definitely my favorite episode is with the author whose name escapes me. The Ten Wen. Yes, for so this sure. This is awesome. Okay, wait, sorry. For sure. No, no, no. Uh, I, like, I mean— of course I'm interested in that because I'm interested in like storytelling and conceptions of like how we make people care about these things. And I also love hearing people's family backstories as we shall do today. Um, also when I was like trying to buy you a gift one time, I like saw this book on a shelf and I was like, Oh, look at this book of short stories about refugees. How perfect for Grant. And then I realized it was sponsored by the IRC and I didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> much so something this, else. <laughs> this was the episode, um, that like challenge the way that I think the most about my work, particularly really? because like I've been working on this like large project, which you know about on yeah. refugee resettlement. Yeah. And like one of like the core pieces, like the through line that brings it all together at all, like the products and programming and, and elements is like trying to switch the narrative around like refugees being a cost to refugees being an investment. Right. Um, right, right, right. And it's like the, the, you know, kind of like major like push of it. And like, I think it's, 
really crucial to change that narrative. But then you like talk with the antenna one who's like, well, that's just as simplifying just in the positive way. Like right. really like right. refugees are like geeks and nerds and gay and straight and all different colors and all different types of people. And like whether it's, it's like the simplification of the narrative that's the problem. I mean, this is something that I have said all the time, always, and totally agree with, because I feel like as much as it's important to have a narrative that's like everyday Africa, in a way, that's the other side of the coin of the narrative of disaster Africa. Um, and, you know, it's not that there's like a truth somewhere in between. It's like that the everyday part is true and the disaster part is true and all of the in-between parts are true. But it's hard to hold all of those in any person's head at any one moment. And people people like heroes and people like villains and people like simple stories and people like stories that they can hold on to in their hearts that make sense and that like cl- clarify the world. And so that's why – that's why I think it's hard. It's harder. It's so much harder to do something complicated and nuanced and uh, to get people to invest the time to understand all of those things. Yeah. Okay, we're going to dive into <laughs> okay. all this. Now that but we've the amazing started. thing is that we get to be siblings both having this exact same conversation. And so it begs the question of like, what did our parents do to make us both do this? <laughs> um, I mean, the Holocaust. <laughs> I mean, it's just that. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where, like, you really don't have to peel the onion all that far. Like, uh, our grandparents survived a Holocaust, survived uh, camps and prisons and and were refugees and uh, came to America and built a life and came to—went to Israel and built lives. And uh, I I feel like one of the strongest values that we were raised with was uh, repairing the world and that— never forgetting and like non-family pictures the earliest picture that I remember is seeing pictures of uh the concentration camp survivors at Dachau um which is where Teddy our grandfather was yes wait was it photos of him or photos just photos of that event there's like a really famous photo um of like that like the bunk beds Mm -hmm. it's a really famous photo and I remember it from like super early on um like it's implanted in my memory um so far back and you know when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't plan to be a photographer. That just sort of happened. And then uh, when you look backwards, you find all of these evidence that supports your new narrative. Like, oh, I ended up being a photographer. I remember that picture so right, right, right. clearly. You like, look back at like the whole story fits together. <laughs> I know, exactly. Which is, you know, again, the narrative. But stuff, so this but. is actually something that I wanted to like talk to you about because I was thinking about it, which is you kind of started out in the space as more of a writer and a journalist and transitioned more into photojournalism. And I wanted to, like, hear how you think about their transition now. Like, what caused it and, like, how do you think about it historically? I wanted to be a writer. And first I thought I was going to be an academic. And then I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. And then I actually thought I was going to be an art critic. Mm -hmm. And then I went to J school and you were working in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And I went to visit. Hashtag good sister. (laughs) And I had this, like, and you were working during Mm -hmm. the day and I had this, like, journalism degree from Columbia, and I was like, well, I should try and be a journalist. And um, actually, when I look back on this, I'm actually amazed that this happened. I, in 2006, talked my way into a Rwandan prison. Yeah, yeah. The experience was, like, really extraordinary for me, and I did this story about women who were accused of genocide who were being held in prisons in Kigali. These were, like—so this is 2006? This is 2006. Um, so, like, 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. Right. It's kind of wild to think about. I know. And we're these old. were, at that point, still prisons that were full of people either accused or convicted of genocide crimes yes. from the genocide that had, at that point, happened, like, 12 years earlier. Right. 
Right. And it's it's funny, like so many of my personal projects have been about like women who are involved in uh, atrocities or crimes. And um, I did not just see that through line until <laughs> right now. But yeah. we're going to come back to we your like portraits of the alt-right America. But, we will. Okay. We will. Anyway. Uh, and so I talked my way into this prison and I was like, this is amazing. I, w- I want to do this. And I did start as a writer. The first couple of years I was sort of doing both. I was writing and I was taking pictures. And my pictures were ultimately better than my writing ever was. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and people would be like, oh, nice story. I loved those pictures. And you're like, I should keep doing that thing. Well, and I was getting more traction as a photographer. And and ultimately, there were, there were only so many hours in the day. And I wanted to be really good at whatever it was that I did. And that was sort of when I made the transition. So I want to pull out one thing you said sure. there, which is like— you were you're better at photography than you were at writing. Mm-hmm. But like what were the characteristics of either photography as compared to writing or just yourself mm-hmm. that like made it sway that way, right? Like mm. a lot of my like very early experiences with photography were quite joyful and they still are. And even when my pictures are sad, my process of taking pictures is often quite joyful and not sad. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember wandering around Kampala in two thousand seven with a camera and people just being so friendly and excited to see me and, you know, sort of like joking around and kids mugging for the camera. And like, that's really fun. That's super interesting that like joy is kind of like one of the things that like happened early in the process. I, uh, I hadn't thought about like the playfulness that kind of photography yeah. can bring in. Way like, more playful than right. Than like bringing out a notepad, yeah. like when you're in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Kids love cameras. Like, you know, my goal is to, like, n- not have just a thousand pictures of, like, goofy kids smiling for cameras. But, like, everywhere I go, I take a thousand pictures of goofy kids smiling for cameras. Okay, so I'm not going to—I don't want, the on- <laughs> like, to over-index the audience members on the joyfulness of your photography. <laughs> and so now we're going to talk about what I think of as, like, one of your breakout projects, which was a set of photos about the 300 girls that were abducted by Boko Haram yeah. um, that were, came out in the New York Times magazine and was syndicated everywhere. Can you— Describe it of the project and tell us about the, that. Well, so after I was in Liberia, I started working in Nigeria and I started working in northern Nigeria. And uh, I was working on some projects there when uh, the news hit that these schoolgirls had been kidnapped. And Nigerians were protesting in the street. And I had a bunch of editors from the USA asking me to photograph the protests. And I was just like, that is not the story here. Like, it's an important story, mm-hmm. but it's not what I want to take pictures of because what matters here is these girls. And the girls are from um, a very remote town on the border of Nigeria and Cameroon called Chibok. And they were kidnapped from their boarding school. And it was very, very, very hard to get to Chibok, and it was extremely dangerous. And, and this is like northern Nigeria, just like a little northern scene Nigeria. in Boko Haram territory. Yes. Like the state has no kind of like control or monopoly over violence. There's about 15,000 active Boko Haram like members at this time. And like tens of thousands of people have been killed. And like over the arc of that, like 2.3 million Nigerians have been displaced just to like yes. ground in severity. And also this is in 2014 when Boko Haram actually had a, declared a caliphate in northern Nigeria. This is actually the, yeah. the strongest Boko Haram has ever been. But um, anyway, back to 2014, the girls are kidnapped and I had this idea to photograph uh, their school outfits and their notebooks and whatever I could find. And so I went to the protests where I met a lot of people who were from that area, from that remote town, who were protesting. 
And I, I was like, hi, I'm Glenna. I have this idea. I want to do this thing. Like, can you help me? And then one guy who I talked to, his name was Sunday Samuel, was like, yeah, let me call my brother right now. He's in Chibok. And I was like, yes, you're mm-hmm. my person. And uh, he's the son of a pastor in Chibok. So he had uh, a lot of influence in the community. And so he had his brother go around the town of Chibok and collect these um, objects for me. And there was an incredibly complicated logistical process of getting them to me. I'm in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. And um, his brother in Chibok collected all these things, took a bush taxi to Meduguri, the biggest town in the north, put the things in uh, a cardboard box and put them in a bus storage unit to take to Abuja, where Sunday met the bus and uh, brought them to me in a photo studio in Abuja. And uh, I took pictures of the objects. And I had um, dresses and notebooks and some of their school uniforms. And I took them against a black background because uh, that sort of felt like it echoed um, the fact that these girls were missing. And this story was viral and people cared about it. And um, in a lot of ways, it, it hits all of the nails on the head of the kind of stories people care about. Like it's innocent schoolgirls. It's, you know, a remote place. It's uh jihadi terrorists uh, and the, the pictures went quite viral and Michelle Obama was tweeting about bring back our girls and so were a lot of celebrities and um, these pictures uh, were impactful to a lot of people who told me that they were the first time they like saw the girls um, because you could see their clothes you could see like the details on their uniforms you, like you could see in their notebooks where they're taking science classes and uh, one of my favorite pages of a notebook is um there's a girl listing all of her friends and she's ranking them. And she's like, these girls are stupid. These girls are stupid and wrong. <laughs> and these girls are on top table, which means like her best friends. And that's teenage girls everywhere. And there was like another notebook where a girl had drawn hearts in it and had the Eiffel Tower on the cover. And she had been writing notes back and forth with a boy that she was like copied into these notebooks. And... um you know, my favorite part was like this boy saying to her, hi, the remote control of my life. Mm-hmm. And it was just so, it was so sweet. And it was so, you got a sense of their youth and you got a sense of who they were as people. And I think that's why uh, the pictures were so specific that they felt that these girls who were missing, that everybody just wanted to know where they were and what happened to them. Like it gave people a chance to see them. So if you like uh, photography, journalism, like to a larger extent, like human rights naming and shaming, like which you, I think you can see this part of, right? Like this is in one element, like a photo shoot of the girls who are missing. Mm-hmm. And like in another element, it's like an indictment on a government that cannot protect its citizens right. and is not responding to yep. the conflict. And you were somebody who's coming in and taking those photos and putting these out into an environment that is like highly politicized mm-hmm. and highly intense. Mm-hmm. And... Like that has repercussions. And yes, so like how do you think does. about <laughs> like how do you think about the repercussions of those acts and like what did it look like in this case? Uh, that is a the big question. Uh it's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> what keeps you up at night? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this this yeah. question keeps me up at night, literally. Uh So the Nigerian government uh, is generally pretty unresponsive to the will of the people, but sometimes is. And uh, people cared so much about these girls, and it was such a global outcry, and it it was seen as such a failure on their part that they were motivated to take action. And these pictures went viral, and uh, they served my career very well, and they did not serve the girls at the time. 
you know, I got flown all over and won these big fancy awards and like these girls were still missing. And uh, when the girls were first kidnapped, it seemed impossible that they wouldn't just like come back immediately. Like people were like, how can you lose 300 schoolgirls? Like they've got to be able to find them. But it's it's actually really hard. Uh, the terrain is extremely inaccessible. This is this is they're being kept in the area of Africa that's called the Sahel, which is uh, the strip of land right below the Sahara Desert. And it's the last place that can barely sustain human life. And part of what has exacerbated this conflict is climate change in that area, which was already extremely inhospitable. And um, the girls didn't just come back. And like years later, uh, there was continued pressure on the Nigerian government to bring them back. And they ended up paying a ransom of 3 million euros to Boko Haram. And I went back to cover that story in 2017. And, um, about 20 of them were released initially, and then another 80 girls were released um, from this ransom, which, you know, is a direct result of, like, the Nigerian government caring about these girls, of them being a priority. Because here's the thing. Thousands and thousands of children have been kidnapped by Boko Haram, but thousands of children do not set off global protests. Uh, really specific girls— like girls who draw hearts on their notebook and uh, girls whose names you know and whose parents are standing in front of the government. Like those receive a different a different level of attention and there's a different politics around them. So the Nigerian government pays 3 million euros to Boko Haram. Some of these girls are released. But in the time between 2014 and 2017 when this has happened, Boko Haram has... Uh, has less power. They There's a fracture internally and they're splitting into two groups. The Nigerian government changes and the new president takes the military offensive more seriously and Boko Haram is being defeated. Not defeated because it's so mm-hmm. hard to wipe out an insurgency, but like they're not as strong as they were, for example, when they held like a caliphate. But then three million euros buys a lot of suicide bombs. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think you would think about it that way. Yeah. So I thought you were going to go a direction where... Like, what if the government, like the government, had spent that three million euros, you know, improving the livelihoods or you know, providing uh, life-saving drugs to, you know, five thousand people or whatever you can yeah. do for that amount, which is like one way to take it. That's a yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with three million euros. There's a lot of things you can do with three million euros, but people cared about the Chibok girls, and it was seen like an achievement of the government to bring them back. So the government did it. It's about priorities and political will. But so, so sorry. So one version of that is like you could use this money better elsewhere, which could be one concern, right? And the other version is like what you're talking about, which is like maybe this is having negative implications because it's actually as a result generating concessions to terrorist yeah. groups that's yeah. actually just giving them strength. Yeah, exactly. It's both both sides of that are true. But the thing is, it's not a compelling story to say we will spend three million euros to pave two miles of road because I don't I don't know what the cost is, but like paving roads is extremely expensive. Or we will spend three million euros to, you know, give 5000 people medicine. Like, that's not something that, you know, has the same pull on people's heartstrings as these schoolgirls that everybody around the world knew about. How does how does this make you either think retrospectively about that project and whether you would have done something differently from like that perspective sure. or uh, just I like mean, project selection more broadly? I mean, look, I was part of a mix of global forces, which include like 
evangelicals in America who care about Christian schoolgirls being kidnapped by Muslims who lobby the Nigerian government. So, you know, this is not to overstate any of the work that I did, but it's in this mix of this story that has, like, sensational appeal. And uh, I, I don't have an answer. It's not like I can say I wish I didn't do the work because I'm, I'm glad I did. Like, it was important to people. You know, people felt really connected to the girls. And, um, and you know, it's important to make people care about a conflict. And, you know, there's a lot of ways into doing that, and this is one of them. You know, uh, work is messy. Like, life is messy. Work has unintended consequences. And uh, I would certainly never— you know, want to do something to make this the situation worse, but you know, we don't we don't we don't control the results of our work. Like you do the work, and you hope that you are doing it ethically and for the right reasons, and you know, with with high standards for how it's executed and how it's published, and then it goes viral and people retweet it, and like it is what it is. So, a kind of variant that we like we've talked about a lot, mm-hmm. but like we think about a lot in our work is just like, what are the representations of the people right. that we are trying to serve? Right. Um, and how do we do that justice? Right. Um, and like one of the things that I want to get dive into here is like, how do you bring people into caring about right. something? Right. Because like, right, like this isn't like the example that you're talking about in one way is like the example that we always wish, yeah. right? Like the mass amount of like international attention on like a human rights atrocity, like right. most human rights atrocities go unspoken right. of, unknown, like right. absent from right. like the global mindset. And I think the implication of that is that people then try to create representations that pull on the heartstrings yes. of people, which yes. tend to be like, here's what tragedy looks like at its worst. Right. Um, and I think the counter argument to that that you see is that like those narratives are oversimplifying. Yes. They uh, like are denigrating and they take away the dignity of people. Yeah. How do you think about that debate? Often. <laughs> I think about it often. What? Yeah. Uh, I, again, there, there are no answers here. There's just all of us fuddling through. I mean, uh, the pictures I did of the Nigerian schoolgirls uh, received a lot of recognition. They were widely viewed. They were widely retweeted. They were widely published. I went back to northern Nigeria in January of 2017, and I did a story for the New York Times magazine about some boys who were kidnapped by Boko Haram. Uh, this was it was on the cover of the Times magazine, and these boys had extremely tragic stories. They were forced to do all sorts of violent acts. It it was an, it was it was an amazing it was an amazing piece of writing, and it was an, and we were on the cover of the Times magazine, and it was widely shared, and it was widely retweeted, and. Nothing happened for those boys. Well, this is like other, one of the other ways that I think about it, and this is from kind of like a, like what what increases people's charity, right? right? And right. like giving, right. Um, right? And like the parallel in like media is like what like what gets you clicks on your web page, right? Exactly, right? And like those aren't necessarily like complex narratives, right? And this is a story. The the story was about like boys who were were trained to kill other people and were trained to murder murder, and like it's it's really hard to have the same level of sympathy for teenage boys who murder other people and are forced to be part of Boko Haram but it it doesn't have it doesn't have the same consequences as as like viral pictures that are part of a slogan that feels really straightforward like bring back our girls it's it has a directive you know when you're like these four teenage boys uh, were trained to murder, fled Boko Haram, and are now 
barely making it by living with family members in Medjugorje. There's not a clear directive, like, how do you make their lives better? Like, we are not going to impact the humanitarian situation in northern Nigeria. And then even when you do impact the humanitarian situation in northern Nigeria, like with the Chibok schoolgirls, like, it doesn't... What kind of impact is that? Oh, that's 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 like the whole like <laughs> theme of this entire podcast. <laughs> let me let me ask you a question though, yeah. which is like, after having been a photographer for like ten plus years, mm-hmm. what are the biases that you feel more aware of? Because like I came into this conversation being like simple versus complex narratives, right. right? And like one of the things you're bringing out is biases in response around actual gender, like the mm-hmm. gender of the subjects. Right. Like what are right. the other like ones that just having like been at this that you seem see called out the most? I mean, there is my own bias more than anything. I mean, and, you know, I am a white woman walking into, for example, a Nigerian military or government office. We're going to get to how you did that, too. (laughs) You know, and uh, I have a different level of access. I'm treated a different way. And then my work has repercussions. And, you know, and I take that really seriously. Like, I don't only want to do stories about conflict. Like, there should be other things represented. I want complicated stories. I want people to be dynamic and nuanced and to be like full versions of themselves. And and that'll be a successful photograph. And, you know, to go back to your other question about um, these representations, I think, you know, th- this debate rages on. Right now there's a famine in Yemen and it is extremely difficult for journalists to get there and to work there. And uh, the New York Times got there recently. A photographer named Tyler Hicks took a photo of an extremely malnourished, I think, seven-year-old girl who does end up dying a couple of weeks later. And this photograph is, it's haunting. Like, you see her rib cage, you see this clinic, and uh, it's its so sad and so hard to look at. Um, but Yemen is a situation that, you know, the American audience doesn't really pay that much attention to until there's this, like, gut-wrenching photo. But when you think about There's a very famous photo from the early 90s from Darfur of a small girl who is outside and there's a vulture standing behind her. And and this photo was on the front page of the New York Times. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It was used in testimony in Congress. Uh, It was an incredibly powerful photo and uh, was part of what galvanized uh, an international response to the conflict in Darfur. Mm -hmm. So you could say that that was an important photo or— you could say, here we are 20-some years later, and there's still a conflict in Darfur. I don't, I don't have answers for this. I don't think there are answers for this. I do think that when we have photos of starving babies, they fill a space that doesn't get filled with something else. I do think it's a zero-sum game. Um, so then it's a question of priorities, and it's a question of consequences. And so just have this questions, is, this is, no answers. This is like a perfect— um, <laughs> Just questions, no answers. It's a perfect pivot because I think one of the things that like is interesting for both me and you was that we had both primarily been working in like active conflict zones or kind of fragile places. And then around 2016, what do you both know? We both like kind of pivot more into domestic politics. So I started working on like refugee resettlement here in the United States, which was under threat given the Trump administration's refugee ban. Mm-hmm. And you started a project documenting the women of the alt-right. And I want to talk about that, but, like, why'd you pivot in? I mean, like everybody else, I was surprised and fearful when Trump was elected. And it felt felt important. And so I— you know, started this project about uh, women who are involved in the alt-right, but also other uh, hate groups and far-right extremist groups in America. I, I, 
<laughs> I didn't think I was necessarily helping anybody when I was like, let's go meet like the most hateful women in America. But it felt. But I'm sure it was pleasant. <laughs> Ooh, it was not. It was not, uh, as you know. Um, it felt important. It felt it felt valuable. So can I ask you? So I think one of the interesting other shifts that happened, like in mm-hmm. parallel for your work, that didn't happen for mine, right? Mm-hmm. Is that like you went actually from oftentimes, um, and this is kind of a feature of your work a little bit, like taking pictures or photographs of like victims Mm -hmm. to taking photographs of not perpetrators like that's not the right terminology but like participants in hate groups well aggressors aggressors Aggressors. okay yeah yeah Um, but but also at the same time like again like think back that very first story i did was about female women accused of genocide in uh in rwanda totally totally i forgot that was already 45 minutes ago that we talked about that (laughs) well and also okay and so then i did this project about the women who write romance novels in northern nigeria and one of the pictures that I found people responded to the most when I would share that work and talk about that work was there was one photograph I did that was of uh, the Hizba, which is the Islamic morality police that operate in, this is in the city called Kano, which is the biggest city in Northern Nigeria and one of the, and the second biggest city in Nigeria. And, uh, the, these books are censored by the Hizbah. Um, and so I have this one photograph of these three women who are Hizbah officers in like long black hijabs. And, you know, they've got like the badge on that says Hizbah. And I had a couple of photos of this office and people would be like, oh, who are they? What's going on there? And uh, people were really interested in it. And, and I was too. And I like, I thought it was interesting to hang out with the Hizbah. And I think it's interesting to look at who enforces the rules. We're going to pause here for a break, and I'll be back shortly with my sister, Glenna Gordon. And we are back on Displace, and I am talking with Glenna Gordon, my sister. We've talked a lot about, like, the flack you've gotten for this project publicly, (laughs) which is, like, no small thing. It's been, like, really stunning to watch and shocking. Like, some of it's from the alt-right who are like, why are you doing this? But, like, a lot of it's from, like, another, like, sect of, yeah. of the population that's basically saying, like, you're humanizing yeah. these people, right? Yes. Like, you're, like, to your mission that you were stating before yeah. of, like, creating – like, you're doing that about people who are aggressors who are, are active in the hate movement. And, like, right. that's giving them too much voice. That's giving them too sure. much space. Like, I mean – well, so there's an idea that – there's an idea called no platforming, which means, like, that these people should not have a platform to speak on. And – uh and that I'm giving them air by photographing them. And uh, one of the biggest picture criticisms I got was that, like, some of the women in my photos are beautiful. And uh, I actually think that it's important to show that because their beauty is a weapon. That is what draws people in. That's what, like, allows them to have power and allows them to be the Aryan ideal that is either the, like, mom who made cookies that they didn't really have or the, like, beautiful girlfriend that they maybe one day want. Um, and so I think it's important to show that in terms of humanizing them. Like when I started this project, I thought that people would be ashamed to be quoted saying racist things and that that was how I was going to like get them. But the truth is they're proud to be quoted saying what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to understand that and we need to look at that. And that's not about humanizing them. It's, it's about examining the way power works and the way hate spreads and what enables an environment where hate crimes can be committed and where systematic injustice can, can continue to thrive. So this is, so in part, like one of the things I'm like hearing is that like you are trying to represent and capture like the aesthetic construction of these groups internally. Yes. yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to show why they have appeal. Right? Like, why do people follow these these leaders? 
and to go back to the no platforming point, when somebody like Alex Jones, who runs the website InfoWars, yeah. which is like a conspiracy theory website, gets kicked off of his platforms, he loses money and he loses followers. So there's this, this idea that there should be no platform. But that is really different. It's really different whether Alex Jones has a platform where he can raise money and reach people versus whether or not we talk about the consequences of Alex Jones's actions. Um the New York Times did a now infamous profile of a man named Tony, who is a neo-Nazi who lives in, I believe, Ohio. I mean, so it was like Tony, like, eats the same mac and cheese yeah. as you and, like, gets Spaghetti. up on the— Yeah, yeah right. Like, mm-hmm. And so this article was highly criticized for uh, humanizing Tony and making it okay that he's racist. But here's the thing about this article. Uh, aside from whether or not you agree with the tone, many of the normal standards of ethics that the New York Times follows were not followed for this. For example, Tony is not his real name. They did not notate that in the article. And that is because I believe that they are engaging with the far right with this sort of like hushed fearfulness, like, oh my God, this Nazi, he eats spaghetti too. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's 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 this fear in how they engage with him that doesn't allow them to engage directly and doesn't allow them to be like, wait, Tony is not his real name. And, oh, his wife, she also runs a racist band. Um, and they missed all of these huge things. And so what I would like to do is to engage with people critically, to be like, yeah, this chick Erica, she's pretty hot. I can see why people want to join Identity Europa. She's the face of Identity Europa. Let's let's talk about that. Let's look at who she is and let's look at what she's doing and let's analyze her behavior. She posted on Discord a whole lot in the lead up to Charlottesville and she helped people get to Charlottesville. She helped people arrange transportation. She held, she hosted a party the night of Charlottesville. She was the one who like had the they got kicked out of their Airbnb. She found them a new house and she was the one who made a party happen. And that party is really important. The party where they celebrate the victory that they had at Charlottesville, that matters because that's what allows them to plan the next rally. That's what allows them to feel good about their beliefs. And we need to look at how that happens. So one of the things that you were like, I feel like a pro at in your days, primarily working in Sub-Saharan Africa, was like accessing like impossible to access institutions. It's I, I kind of like think of it as like a Gordon like quality. Yeah. Right? Like there was a moment in which like I was kind of like somewhat embedding with the Congolese army, and yeah. you were like engaged with the Nigerian army. It's yeah. like that, that wasn't expected. Yeah. And then you like <laughs> came to the U.S. and I remember like talking with you about like starting this project and like the challenges of access yeah. and. I would love to hear about like what you've learned about how to access hard institutions or groups or places that you are trying to capture. The way power works in the Nigerian military and the way power works in like a hate group in America are actually opposite. Um, Once I have permission from the head of the Nigerian military, absolutely everybody wants to help me and wants me to get what I need and wants me to stay safe. Um, And they are going to enable me to get what I need done. And (laughs) once I had permission from the head of a hate group, I like— thought the same thing was true, but the opposite is true. Uh, The thing about these groups is that they are like loosely structured and uh, they don't have the same rigid hierarchy. So actually the leader is only important to me when he's physically present. And the second he's gone, like somebody's going to kick me out of something. And when I started, I was real afraid. I was very fearful. I was super fearful. And my first couple of events that I went to on my own did not go well. Uh, I went to the annual convention of the League of the South, which is a pro-slavery, pro-Southern secession hate group who calls themselves the Southern Heritage Group in Wetumka, Alabama in uh, July of 2007. And I met David Duke at 8.30 in the morning. Uh, I heard talks about 
guns and homes and people just saying like some of the most racist things at the time I had ever heard. And, uh, I was not in control of myself. I was nervous and they could see it. And basically there was a series of events that happened that day where the leader of the group left and somebody who I refused to tell me his name, refused to shake my hand, uh, basically saw that he could kick me out. And so he did. He did. And he like escorted me out with like a bunch of armed dudes with like AR-15s and I left and uh, went to a parking lot called you hyperventilating and cried until I puked. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember that call. <laughs> Um, and then I like toughened up and I was like, this doesn't serve me. This doesn't serve my objectives. If I am afraid, like I don't get my work done. And ultimately there's a difference between fear and risk. I was like afraid in that room filled with armed racist assholes, but like I was actually not at risk. Nobody is actually going to touch me. Like I'm at the, I'm there for a major American publication. I'm an outsider. I'm a journalist. I have media accreditation. And there are actually high consequences for somebody fucking with me in that environment. And ultimately, I think that this goes back to like the sort of hushed tone that like the New York Times took with that Nazi piece. Like we can't be afraid of this. If we are afraid of this, they win. If we are afraid of this, we are not critically looking at what is happening. We are not engaging. And this is not about humanizing. This is about understanding. And fear does not serve us. One of the really great parts about being your brother is that I get uh, recommendations and access to amazing photography that I would not otherwise find. <laughs> and I think actually finding really good photography about the world is really hard. Yeah. Uh, beyond people checking out your work, which they should do, um, what are two or three either photographers or photo projects that um, you think people should go look at Ooh, to just open their personal aperture? Take that photography metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that was thanks. a good. That was a good. That was a good <laughs> one. That was a little punny. I mean. I was obviously extremely influenced by Tim Hetherington's work on Liberia, and he made a book called Long Story Bit by Bit. And it's a book of portraits and still lifes, and it's a book about war, but it also has pictures of, like, a spider and uh, somebody's kitchen. And when I saw that book, that was the first time I realized photos could be more. And um, Tim Hetherington was a— he was not just a photographer. He was also like, he was also interested in implicating people. And he actually served on some of the UN panels to collect evidence of war crimes after the Liberian Civil War. And he was also a writer and he interviewed people. And his book, that book is also like an indictment of war criminals. And so I think that that's a book that shows like the true span of humanity. It shows like the terror of war and it shows the aggressors and it shows the victims and it shows, you know, the beauty of Liberia too. You know, the cover photo is a picture of the rainforest from a helicopter. Um, so that's my first recommendation. Um, I'm just going to be plugging all my friends here. Um, my good friend Andrew Sivo is a Nigerian photographer and uh, he does really beautiful work and he did an amazing project on barbershops in West Africa. And here is like an example of something that is about like the nuance of everyday life here. This is not about people being rich or people being poor. It's about both. You see fancy barbershops, you see barbershops that are like beautifully cared for, but are basically like outdoor spaces where somebody is uh, doing haircuts. Like the signage is amazing. The decor is amazing. And I think it'll really give a sense of what I'm talking about, of like the texture of life in West Africa. Glenna Gordon, renowned photographer, sister who once tried to suffocate me with a Cabbage Patch Baby when I was just a few days old and very dear friend. I, I do not remember that, but I have been told enough stories that apparently it is true. I was four and I still apologize. Thank you for being undisplaced. <laughs> 
So I thought it was great. And my main takeaway is that uh, your sister's obviously much more interesting than you and better on podcasts. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next season, uh, the podcast with Ravi Gurmersley and Glenna Gordon uh, and on the Vox Media <laughs> but, Podcast Network. Uh, but I, seriously, Grant, but seriously, I just want to ask you, because it's obviously really weird and artificial interviewing your sister on a podcast, but how, what did you learn from it? And, and so first of all, I listened that everybody should interview their siblings on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was actually a really great interview. I was surprised on how much a lot of the issues that I've been grappling with um, around kind of working more on domestic issues after having worked internationally um, resonate with the exact type of things that she has been thinking about. And uh, we dove into some of the similar connections in the way that we're thinking about that in ways that um, I wouldn't have necessarily presupposed are similar for photographers as much as they are for people who are working in kind of humanitarian response and policy. Um, I also uh, think that there's a lot of tried and old debates about how you do ethical photography um, in challenging places that are all really important. But I learned a lot about how you not only do that um, in ethically and responsible ways, but how you do it in illuminating ways. Um, and so found this to be a really breath of fresh air in what are some of the kind of older conversations that happen in the spaces we operate in. And you're up next week with your pops. Yep, my dad is in New York, so I thought I'd take the chance to actually uh, grab a podcast with him. Also very exciting. Um, we would love to hear from you. Tweet at us. I am at Grant M. Gordon, and Ravi is at Murthy. And feel free to drop us an email. We are at displaced at rescue.org. And just to say thank you at Vox Media to Megan Kunane, who produced the show. Our engineer is Jelani Carter, with extra help today from Jarrett Floyd. Golder Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kerwa is the executive producer of audio. At the IRC, Anna Fuhrer is our researcher, and a special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sarkowski, and Ben Moskowitz. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.